Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week on the show is Leah Davison, who you almost certainly know from her two-plus decade-long career racing cross-country at the highest level. And she just announced her retirement from that particular phase of her career. So we sat down to talk about all of it, including her early days racing the Norba circuit and her wild first trip to world championships and everything since then, including her trips to the Olympics and the 2020 games and all of the drama that ensued around qualifying for those and the state of racing, along with the next generation of American stars and a whole lot more. And through all of it, Leah proves to be an incredibly thoughtful guest with a ton of great stuff to say about her career and everything that's going on in the racing world, and it's a super fun one. But before we get into it, I also would like to take just a quick minute to encourage those of you who haven't already to leave us a quick rating or review in Apple Podcasts. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. But... If you've listened to more than a couple of these already, then we'd really appreciate it if you took just that minute to leave us a rating or review, which will go a long way towards helping us keep the show growing and going and bringing you these great conversations that you're apparently enjoying since you keep tuning into them. So thanks for doing that. We appreciate all the support. And with that, let's get right into my conversation with Leah. Well... Leah, thanks for coming on. Great to have you here. How are you today? And where are you today? Yeah, great question. Thanks so much for having me. Psyched to be here. I am in Tucson, Arizona at a at the beginning of a training block here for me. So I'm very thirsty. <laughs> I'm in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> I came back from I just came back from a mountain bike ride. So that's where I'm at. Awesome. And sweet you're getting out. So kind of part of why I wanted to have you on here is that you just announced your retirement from international racing, though, as you've alluded to, it's uh, perhaps not the most relaxed retirement that you're easing <laughs> into right now. We'll get into yeah. into some of what that's about in a little bit here. Yeah. <laughs> but to start it off, I just let's kind of start from the beginning. You've been racing World Cups for a long time, but where did you get started in your mountain biking journey? And how did you get into racing to begin with? I, yeah, I've been racing on the international scene since I began um, back in, when was that? When dinosaurs roamed the earth? <laughs> it was about 20 years ago. My first world championships was in 2001 in Vail, Colorado as a junior. And I started racing mountain bikes about a year before that. So I was about 17 years old when I started and just started doing local races. We have a weekly race called the Catamount Wednesday night race. I still use it in Vermont to this day as like a really good race effort. So I started there. There's like one lap, two lap, three lap, four lap. Now I do the four lap with all, with all the guys and I race them. Um, I started with like the two lap, I think, or the three lap at Catamount. I, it was a sport that I took to pretty naturally because I came with a background in cross-country running. So I had the endurance from that and the fitness. And then with a combination of downhill ski racing. So it was that that kind of brought like the bike handling, looking ahead on the trail aspect. So 
mountain biking was really the perfect marriage between those two sports. And so I automatically found something that clicked and I, I love to do. And when I was 18, I did my first two Norba nationals. So that was like the big national race at the time, the Norba series. And I won the junior race and USA Cycling came up to me and they said, hey, you won this race, you're going to world championships. And I'm like, what? <laughs> there's a world, I had no idea. You know, there was a world championships. And it was kind of in that moment, I realized like, I saw all these pro women doing this for a living and, and doing this for a job. I had just qualified for world championships. So obviously, I was on the move up. And I realized that it was an Olympic sport. So I thought, oh, my gosh, this is my ticket. I this is my ticket to the Olympics and and to make my lifelong dream happen because I was trying to make it happen in downhill ski racing. So yeah, that was kind of the beginning of this journey for me in this in 20 years ago. It's pretty incredible. Time flies. Yeah, that's great. And I just love the bit about not even knowing that <laughs> there was a world championships to yes. go to until you had already qualified for it. And so how many mountain bike races would you estimate that you had done at that point? Oh, um, oh boy. We're probably talking like eight to 10 <laughs> and two national races. Yeah. I mean, I was fresh, fresh into it. I showed up at world championships. It was in Vail. So we had a training camp at Colorado Springs at the Olympic Training Center. So that alone was just like such a cool eye-opening experience. You get there, you see the Olympic rings. And I had a bike, a road bike that I was training on with down tube shifters that my uncle had given me. And so I show up with this down tube shifter bike and everyone's going, who is this girl? <laughs> like, what's her deal? And I had done all these races with a camelback on my back. So I showed up to world champs, even though there was feed zones and everything. And I raced with a camelback, like I was very hydrated. So I was very much so fresh on the scene and, and did not know like, kind of the ins and outs of the sport and the etiquette. <laughs> That's amazing. And so where did things go from there? And, you know, you mentioned earlier, too, that you had been a fairly serious alpine ski racer as well. And kind of how far down that path did you have to go before you decided that bike racing was really going to be the direction for you? And when did you step away from ski racing and kind of what were the next steps in the career progression at that point? Yeah, world championships as a junior, that was a really important um, time for me because I then got on the radar of John Kemp, who ran Team Devo. And that was like the legendary development team at the time. So many good riders came through that program. And so I got to meet John. He put me on the team. And then from there on out, it was like training, how to be a pro, like Pro 101, you know? So that was a, that was a very important step in my progression. I mean, I'll just give you an example. He was so great and really laid down the fundamentals of like what it means to be a professional cyclist. So I show up to the world, we were at the World Cup for at Mount St. Anne, and I show up to the venue. We only got like two kits that season. And so I showed up with last year's kit because both kits were 
were dirty and the kit had the wrong sponsor on the shoulder. And so I, yeah, whatever, this is a clean Jersey. I'm going to ride in it. And he was livid. <laughs> I mean, it didn't have the right sponsor. We're at like this world cup venue. And so he literally took like, called me over, took a pair of scissors and cut off the sleeves of my Jersey and cut off the wrong sponsor. And guarantee you, I never wore the wrong jersey or the wrong sponsors again. So yeah, there there were some very important lessons learned from John Kempfen on Team Devo. And I was I was on Team Devo for all all the years that I was in college. And it was it was a junior development team and a U23 development team. So we traveled around the country racing all the Norba Nationals in like a 18-wheeler truck. And yeah, we just we were living it up racing domestically. It was it was pretty amazing. At the same time, I went to Middlebury College and I was still ski racing. So um I ski raced. My freshman year, I had a great season. I went to NCAAs, just missed out on on being All-American by like some crazy small time margin that happens in, in downhill ski racing. And then I was doing a race, like a spring series race, and I tore my ACL. So... Yeah, that kind of marked the end <laughs> of ski racing. Not the end completely. I mean, I redshirted that year. I um, got my ACL repaired. I actually still raced that summer. That was my first year pro. So I had all of this racing lined up because I was my first year pro. I had just first year on Team Devo, just come off of world championships. And so... I um, raced without an ACL. So that was not great, but I still got to race. And then I got it repaired after the season in the fall. And yeah, that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, bike racing is going to take me places. So I kind of officially switched over to that. And how did you feel about that decision at the time? Was it, I guess it's kind of you alluded to, it just seemed like that was the more viable kind of career path forward and that was what did it and you were content with that or was there sort of any kind of lingering what ifs about that decision or how did you feel about it yeah there were no what ifs actually I mean I found my calling so I was all in it was all excitement really I mean I was not excited that I tore my ACL and I couldn't race um you know at that highest level collegiately but it was kind of a natural progression and I was just going more towards where the positive energy was and and excitement was. So I was, I was thrilled about it. You know, it's not that, that transition in from downhill ski racing to mountain biking is not as complicated as (laughs) this transition retiring from world cups. I can tell you that much. Like it was all positive. Um, all good. Yeah. So take us through kind of the next few years in those early days as a full-time pro racing Norba mostly. And what was the experience like then? Because we'll get into this more in a few, but the whole race landscape has changed dramatically since that period. And so what was it like at that point? for people who kind of maybe haven't been steeped in this for as long and don't even remember that era. Yeah. Um, 
it it was completely different than it is now. You're you're definitely right that the landscape has completely changed. I I feel like I came into the sport at the end of mountain bike heyday and especially Norba heyday where you had pros, semi-pros getting six six six-digit contracts. Everyone had like a truck and trailer set up. There were these big pro teams based in the U.S. And this was the premier race series. So it was Canadians racing. It was all of North America as well as Australians. Even some Europeans would come over. So I would line up to a pro race with 70 other women. So essentially, it's like a World Cup is now. And and now it's completely changed. I feel like the sport has dissipated in terms of disciplines, race disciplines and race options, right? So, you know, there were World Cups, obviously, the World Cup became a thing and, and was very popular. And now that kind of became the premier race series. But the Norba went away. And so there wasn't really that big domestic series that unified the entire sport for downhill and cross country. It went enduro, it went 24 hour races, it went more of like the marathon races, super D, you know, short track, there was all these disciplines that kind of cropped up um, over, you know, over the course of my career. So now you're you know, a, a good domestic pro field is 30 racers. And there are definitely some U.S. Cups that have pulled that. But it was a thriving scene back in the day. Those first, I would say, five years that I was a part of it, um, maybe even six, you know, on Team Devo. And then um, on my first pro team, Trek VW, it was thriving. Yeah. And this is something that we've talked about on the show here with a number of different guests in last bit, but I just, I'm always curious to hear people who were really in the, in the midst of it at the time's take on kind of just what went off the rails and how it all, how Norba particularly all kind of ceased to be. I know what, it's what such happened a, there. I don't, I mean, <laughs> I don't really know. I was, I was a young end, so I wasn't really in like, kind of embedded in the scene as much as I am now, I think, well, Norba went away, which was the big problem, right? Because you had a, a unifying organizing race committee that, that really brought the power. It was covered TV coverage on outdoor life network. I mean, I have old videos <laughs> of like these races on, on outdoor, like on TV, on live TV. So it was, it was pretty incredible. And yeah, once Norba went away, then, uh, yeah, cycling mountain bike racing in the U S had a hard time. And I'm not sure, I'm sure there's a whole backstory about that, that I don't know what happened, but I think you, like I said, I think there was a spreading out of race disciplines. And so then there wasn't kind of this one series that everyone would go to. And I feel lucky to, to be around and kind of introduced to the sport during that time, because I looked around to see 70 women on the start line. And I thought to myself, oh, this is a viable option for me. Like this is, this is, could be a successful career path. And it was really inspiring. 
And now it's, it's kind of a tougher climate out there. I mean, you look around at these U.S. cups and you go, most, there's like maybe one or two teams there and um, a lot of privateers, you know, putting together their own programs and you go, how am I going to do this? Like as a newbie, you know, before it was, you have a couple good results, you're the up and comer game on, you're like signed to a team as like the development rider. So the path is a little bit more murky and circuitous right now. Yeah, it's really interesting how that's changed. And that's, I think, kind of a perfect flip side to something that we've heard from a number of professional free riders, notably Casey Brown, for example, who made the point that when she was coming up, there wasn't really a path to just becoming a pro free rider right off the gate. She she felt like she had to go race and prove herself as a talented mountain biker to kick off a pro career of any sort. And then once she was established, she was able to then make that switch into free riding, which was kind of more where her heart was. But and it feels like that has changed in that it's it's almost flipped in that with the advent of kind of more just social media and video driven marketing of things that it's now much easier to draw attention to yourself producing that kind of content. But then the race side of things has suffered as a trade-off. And absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so tricky. Like social media has changed everything really. I mean, now pro riders need to be, we need to be our own social media managers and PR managers as well as a pro rider. And one of those jobs is a full-time job. And there's definitely pressure for sure. And, you know, it provides a great platform to share stories and connect with people. And there's definitely a flip side to it too, of like, you know, I am not in control of the Instagram algorithm. (laughs) You know, like, it's like results. I'm not in control of the results. So, Sometimes it can be frustrating because it doesn't necessarily, the amount of effort you put into it doesn't necessarily come out the other end, right? So it's not like um, if I follow a training schedule, yeah, something is going to work out eventually, right? Like I will eventually show up to a race and be fit and the stars will align, but like, going viral. Like there's no training plan for Instagram. (laughs) So it's, it's tricky. It's like open some doors and it's also, um, I would say, I wouldn't say close some doors, but made some things harder. Yeah. That a hundred percent makes sense. It's not entirely positive or negative, just a massive sea change for both better and worse. And depending how you want to look at it or what you prioritize. So I guess I'd be curious to hear this one too. Um, Somehow you were magically put in charge and could not moving away from social media, but just talking about the U S domestic racing scene. What do you think you would want to see done to try to reclaim the glory days? I guess. Oh yeah. If I had a magic wand, I I think I would like to see a North American series. So the US and and Canada work together to create 
you know, this, this high level race series, all HCs, so the highest level of points and, and we could really get a great series going that way. So I think that could be a direction to move in. I mean, it's, it's hard to run a race right now. If it's not a gravel race, it's hard to run a race. So, you know, it's, um, it's hard to get the dollars to put on the HC. It's hard to get sponsorship and support. So it's a, it's a tricky landscape for sure. But I think that would be a really good place to start because then it kind of bolsters the power of both Canada and the US, which we have a lot of great and talented riders. And so to bring those riders together in one series to race against each other and also raise the bar for both countries, because we go over to Europe and we are at a disadvantage because we don't live a two hour drive away. We have to deal with the time change. We have to deal with like three to four trips over to Europe. So, you know, Canadians and Americans are dealing with the same barriers and to see us work together a little bit would be amazing. I think. Yeah. That seems like a really good start. And like you said, it, it, it just feels like of late. Well, yeah, both countries have not done a particularly good job of, developing the up-and-coming talent that we've got and just having a better race series to make that easier would be a, a really good place to start. So that kind of does segue into the next place I wanted to go with this really is just that, you know, well, like you said, Norba faded away and your career kind of had to go pivot to racing in Europe and or primarily, largely in Europe anyway, racing the World Cup Series, which is yeah happening significantly there anyway. <laughs> right. So what was that leap like? How did it go having to suddenly tackle all of that extra challenges that you just described? I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it. And yeah, how did that all go? I was, I mean, it was definitely challenging and I was hungry for that next step because that's where I wanted to race is on the world cups. And that was always the goal and the dream. And so I was ready for it. I was excited to travel. I was young and, and just really eager um, to learn from my older teammates and everything. So yeah, I would say, it, I, I mean, it took me a while to actually do a full season, a full world cup season. I mean, for a couple of years there, I was doing Mount St. Anne and um, a cup, like maybe world champs over. That was my first European trip was world champs over in Scotland. So I can't, was that in 2007 maybe or 2008? So yeah, I mean, I, you just learn, right? You're kind of like diving head first. A bike race is a bike race when it comes down to it with a start and a finish line. And so I just, in all the situations, tried the best I could and just kept learning really. And, and realizing like there are a bunch of steps, like that first Norba I did at Mount Snow, that was a huge step in terms of technical um, riding. I was like, whoa, this is really different. This is super technical. And you kind of, you know, walk away from that race weekend having improved, you're like, okay, now I know I can ride that. And the progression over in Europe is, is kind of similar. You know, it's all 
kind of steps leading up to hopefully the top step, you know, the World Cups. But it definitely takes um, time and and a progression. Yeah, all just kind of working up to something. And are there any particular, I don't know, stories that stand out from those early days of racing in Europe or any you mentioned some teammates that you were learning a lot from anyone who was particularly valuable in your kind of development at that era. Anything along those lines that jumps out at you as something to share? Yeah, absolutely. I was teammates on Trek VW with Sue Haywood and she was my mentor essentially. I mean, she was, I was on my first big pro team. So pumped, you know, with all the moments that, come down when you're on your first pro team. So you get like all of the stuff and you get all your kits and like luggage and everything. So that was really fun. And Sue really took me under her wing. They would call her the shepherd and I would just follow her around like a, like a little lamb. And so my nickname actually was little lamb chop. So she really gave me a lot, um, a lot in terms of, everything. I mean, learning the ropes, how to travel, how to change time zones, how to be a pro, uh, how to, how to, you know, race technical stuff, lines, um, and mindset. I mean, I was lucky that she is very relaxed and laid back. And I think she has some of the best perspective out there. I mean, going into that team, I had watched the documentary on the chase for that one Olympic spot in Athens, off-road to Athens. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. But the end of the story is that Sue, they named Sue to the Olympic team and then they took her off the Olympic team um, just because of points and confusion. And so that's heartbreaking. And she, her quote from that movie is, well, if if not going to the Olympics is the worst thing that happens in my life, then I've had a pretty good life, you know, if just barely missing out on the Olympics. So I think I have taken kind of that perspective with me throughout my career of gratitude and um, having, yeah, just, I think, creating more space in terms of all right, it's not all results like and and that really helped me this past season in terms of not making the Olympics. I mean, I definitely pulled on on her what I learned from her a lot in that perspective. Yeah, that's a very commendable attitude to take towards it and one that I would I think probably struggle yeah. with a bit. But, There's definitely struggles, um, believe me. <laughs> but you try to land on that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Probably not where you are right from the jump, but mm-hmm. something to work towards. But yeah, so anyway, I guess on that note then, let's talk about the Olympics here. So I guess going in, I think one of the – into what was supposed to be the 2020 Olympics, one of the things that – was most interesting about that cycle was sort of the collaboration that you and the rest of the American women took on to really make a push to make sure that there were three places available for you to, you know, and kind of 
because it's it's a weird thing where you have this largely individual sport that has a team component and then the balancing of the group of you working collaboratively kind of knowing that it ultimately wasn't going to work out for everybody but just trying to put all of your collectively in the best place you could so i guess one we should probably explain what we're talking about to people who weren't following as closely and then yeah well yeah so just take us through all that yeah i'll i'll take you through it yeah so um Tokyo was the first Olympic cycle where they equaled up the number of spots available, um, Olympic spots available for the men and the women. So for the first time, the women, the top two ranked nations got three spots. And this was huge because before the top ranked nations only got two spots. And so we saw that and we thought, okay, that's, that's the goal. I mean, USA Cycling was on board. The riders were on board. We knew that if, if we had three spots, it was, better, it was a better chance for all of us, right? Like one, it was a better, better odds that one of us were, go- were going to go. So in order to get those three spots, we had to be ranked top two in the world as a nation. And they take those, that ranking comes from the two years leading up to the Olympics. And each year they take the top three ranked riders from the country. So that can change those, that three can change depending on the year. And so we were in a really good situation because we had Kate, we had myself, Chloe, Woodruff and Aaron Huck, Kate Courtney, I should say. And Kate had a really great season. I mean, she came off of winning world champs and then that next season just absolutely killed it and won several world cups, won the world cup overall. So she was ranked up there and really helped our nation's ranking. And then it was flipping and flopping between Aaron, Chloe and myself on who was counting. Um, depending on what season, there were some injuries and everything. So really, I mean, Kate was doing her part, right? She was winning World Cup so great. And Aaron, Chloe, and I got together at World Cup finals in West Virginia in 2018. And we said, wait, is that right? Yeah, because it would count, you know, that season and the next season. And we devised a plan working together to to get the most points possible in order to get to be ranked top two. So that meant we sometimes were doing stage races together. We sometimes we divided and did separate stage races all over the world. So just to give you a a little snapshot of what that looked like the year before in 2019 in the fall, there was a test event, Olympic test event in Tokyo. So before that test event, I went home to rest and Aaron and Chloe went, traveled to Israel (laughs) to do the Israel epic together and to get points. And then they went from Israel to Japan. I went from home to Japan. We all met in Japan and, and did the test event. And then since they had already done their part in Israel, they went home. And then I went to Greece after the Japan test event. And I did two stage races, just solo stage races in Greece. And then I wrapped up my season. So we were really, 
going all over the place and getting these points. So what we did was really such a beautiful thing because we did truly work together as a team in an individual sport to get those three spots. And that is something really special. And, and it created a team. It, it re, we really were a team throughout that entire time, supporting each other. Um, and it was really fun. And, and I have been on a mission um, before then, since then, to prove that we are stronger as a team, even in an individual sport. You know, I, my point is, we have the entire, as Americans, we have the entire world to race against. So why focus on just racing each other? Yes, I know that we are competing against each other for spots, but there's really like 70 other women out there <laughs> to race against. So if we work together, we're going to do, do better collectively against the world. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. And it was amazing what we were able to do together. Yeah, it was super cool to see that happening. And I'd be interested to hear you talk a little bit more just about a little more about kind of what into that planning, like to what extent was it just you coming together and deciding what events you were going to do to sort of maximize the potential number of points that you could all collectively accrue versus stuff like maybe training together more intensely than you or more regularly than you had been previously or what all were the various components of this team strategy, I guess. Yeah, it was, it was a lot majority of coming together and planning and really like looking at the schedule and, and strategically mapping out our schedules. So the three of us would get the most points possible. So we had, no one had ever done that really before you know, as competitors come together and, and map out this plan that we were going to execute together. It also looks like um, in the face of COVID, you know, after COVID leading up into the 2021 season, we didn't have as many races, you know, in in that springtime, in, in um, the previous season, obviously. And so we scheduled a camp in Tucson where – you know, we invited the entire long team, Olympic long team. Some were able, not everyone was able to make it work, but um, we got a good number of the long team athletes there and we trained together. And the whole idea was let's in, in the face of not having these race efforts and racing each other, let's race each other here in Tucson and let's get that kind of high intensity in. So um, it also looked like that. And at the races, riding together, working together on lines, you know, supporting each other at the World Cups, because essentially, Chloe, Aaron and myself, we didn't have trade teams on the World Cups, we were all we were only privateers. So our trade team is USA or was USA Cycling. So they USA Cycling as a national team functions as a trade team with a mechanics one year, the whole thing, a van, lodging together. So we were on a team at World Cups together. And it was really fun. It just it makes it so much better. I'd also like to hear a little more just about how the postponement of the Olympics factored into all of this. I mean, I have to, I can only imagine that it's incredibly hard to have this date on the calendar and be working towards that 
in your training and your mental preparation for it and all the rest and then have that fall through and be like, well, shit, I guess I have to do this again next year and take us through that. Yeah, it's a lot to deal with. I mean, it's like a forever Olympic buildup, which, you know, one Olympic buildup to the the winter before the Olympics, it is so intense. And there is so much pressure. I mean, in order to have success on that World Cup level, that international level, everything goes into it, everything. And everything needs to go right. No injuries, you know, you're just clocking away on training, you're recovering, you're in a good situation at home. I, there are so many factors that go into it. And, and so you are trying to get it right all around, which means you're on 24-7. I mean, the way, every decision that you are making is like, is this going to hurt me or help me in terms of my Olympic goals? And I think that's hard to grasp for a lot of people that it is, you're in this pressure cooker, you know, and you don't really get to check out and clock out of it. And so to have that be extended, (laughs) you know, over the course of another year and a half is so intense. And during a pandemic where there's so much else, so much other uncertainty. So it was tough. And there, when it got postponed, because you're trying to check the boxes and you need these certain things like race efforts to get ready for something like the Olympics, there was a, a small sense of relief because I was sitting there that spring of the 2020 when everything was going down with COVID going, how am I going to make this happen? I'm in Vermont in the snow in March, when I'm used to like racing, I don't like, I just didn't know. And that was very stressful. So yes, there was some grieving in terms of, oh my goodness, I was ready. You know, like I was ready in 2020. I had a great buildup. All, you know, all pistons were firing. And so I was bummed to that it was postponed, of course. And then there was a sense of relief, like, okay, and I quick, I quickly pivoted to, uh, well, I have another year to get ready for this, for like this ultimate goal of my career. So I was pretty soon like thereafter, okay, let's train, let's get going. I was in a rhythm. Um, and then, you know, obviously it did not work out. So I think the, the pandemic and that postponement favored the younger racers like Haley Batten, who had an extra year to come up, get experience. Maybe they start racing in the elite, in the elite ranks. And then like Haley, she came out just on fire. And I mean, what a world cup. That's amazing. She absolutely earned her spot to the Olympics and it didn't favor the older athletes who, you know, were like, we were, I was ready for 2020 and then I got injured, you know, in the lead up to that until 2021. So I think there were a lot of cases that you saw in the Tokyo Olympics that um, were younger athletes maybe qualified and older athletes did not get selected. Yeah, that has to have been incredibly hard. And you had at least had two Olympics runs before that. So 
it wasn't like it was your only shot, I guess. But still, I can only imagine that that was pretty brutal. Yeah, I mean, it was it was heartbreaking. I think a lot of people go there like, oh, Leah was fine because she's already been to two Olympics. And I, I wasn't fine. <laughs> I mean, I like that Olympic, I was on a progression, right? So I came in 11th in London, I came in seventh in Rio. I was like on a progression for that Olympic medal and, and wanted that opportunity, like that last Olympics to, to have that. Yeah. To, to just have that opportunity and I didn't get it. So yeah, I'm not in control of that and the selection and the results and everything. So it is what it is. And it's, it is a, it, it was extremely tough and heartbreaking and something that I have moved through, but I'm like, probably will still deal with that, you know, like I'm still moving through it. To pivot it around to sort of a, sort of, I guess, more positive career retrospective note. Looking back from that whole span of the two Olympics, couple of world championships medals, whole, you know, like I said, nearly two decades of racing as a top tier pro, kind of what stands out as some of your favorite moments from that or proudest accomplishments from that era? Yeah. That, thank you for that question. That's a great question. I definitely my first world, well, the first, uh, my first Olympics, you know, that's, that's the lifelong dream. And when that came true, oh my, like I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. That was an incredible experience. And every, you know, and the Rio Olympics after that, the same, like every Olympics that you go to, it is, it is the culmination of a lot of hard work and dedication, like a a lifetime. So when that can come true, it's, it is an incredible feeling. Also the first, my first world championships medal. I mean, that, that was a crazy moment because I had hip surgery, uh, uh, I tore some cartilage in my hip that winter. And I had surgery in February. And then I came back from that surgery in the same season to get to win national championships, to get on the podium at Mount St. Anne World Cup, and then to get my first world champs medal. I mean, my mind was on in pieces, like on the floor. I mean, completely blown. So I was the happiest on that podium. Even though I came in third, I was just like over the moon, um, overjoyed with that, with that result. And then also that silver medal, you know, that silver medal in Czech leading up to the Rio Olympics. That was also incredible because I had the worst start ever. (laughs) I mean, I was in like 25th or something. And before that race, my coach was like, you know, just when you at the end of the start loop, I think it would be great if you were in the top three. And then I crossed like that finish line in in of the start loop in 25th. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to have the next, you know, the next laps are going to (laughs) be the next laps of my life, pretty much if I'm going to be in contention. And I just 
went for it because I really had nothing to lose. And I passed that many girls, you know, women to, to get a silver medal. So that was also unbelievable. I mean, I think I was the happiest on that podium too, <laughs> because I was just like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this worked out. And it, you know, it proved to me that never give up until you cross the finish line because you, you never know what's going to happen. So those are definitely the highlights. And I would, I would definitely say, even though it's not as like glamorous of a result, but the fact that that last World Cup I in West Virginia, I showed up and I had finally had the race that I knew I could have. And most of the race, I had the Olympic champion, Yolanda Neff, just hanging on my wheel. I mean, it was pretty poetic that I, I had finally gotten there and the Olympic champ is like drafting off of me the entire race. So that I was very glad that that happened for me and that I would say it was a great note to go out on, especially racing at, on home turf. The crowd was amazing, so loud and so supportive. And just to be the first American at that World Cup and, and have that experience, it was very rewarding. It took a lot of resilience to get there. That was great. And yeah, super cool note to go out on. It was it was a really nice moment. Were you there? No, but Ugh. watching. I, yeah, yeah. I, I really would have <laughs> liked to have been, but was yeah. not able to make it happen for that one, unfortunately. Yeah. Watching on Red Bull, though. That's good. <laughs> so I guess another thing I'm curious to hear you talk about a little bit is, you know, you spoke earlier about some of the mentorship that you received earlier in your career. And then when you put out your retirement announcement, Kate Courtney in particular had just some very nice things to say about the support and uh, tutelage that you'd given her as she was coming up to the ranks. And so do you have any particular thoughts on kind of making that transition from being the up and comer to the veteran leader on the team and what you got out of and learned from going through all that? Yeah, I think Sue Haywood really set the tone like in mentoring me. So I took that kind of that same approach and that mentoring throughout my career as I made that transition from like the young up and comer to the veteran racer. And I was always happy to mentor. I mean, it gives me a lot of joy to give back to the sport and, and to teach like I was taught, you know, coming up and then to see these women just absolutely take off and soar and, and just maybe like with a couple, one or two things, you know, that I'm like, why don't, why don't you try this or this? And a, a lot of times it's, it's only like, you know, I, I like to create a community and, and a, that same team atmosphere, right? So it's, it's supporting other riders and racers, even, even though they're your competitors. I mean, that's just kind of the way that I approach things. So I was very happy and it was one of the highlights of my career to be on the team with Kate because we just had so much fun. I mean, 
in those years, we were a dynamic duo and we had a blast and we both had a lot of success too. So it's nice to have a buddy um, that you really vibe with, you know, and good thing we did because I spent more time with her, you know, in Europe, sleeping in the same bed with her than I did my wife <laughs> like, through those seasons. So it's, we really just had a, a really fun time. And I was able to, I think, teach her a lot during that time and look where she's gone. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's worked incredible. out for her. Okay. Yeah. I mean, world champ. It's amazing. World cup overall leader. She's just, She's just taken off. So it's, yeah, I just, it just gives me a lot of joy when I can help and, and mentor. I love doing it. Yeah. seems like it's uh, been rewarding and like we said, some stuff's come out of it. So yeah, totally. And that article Kate wrote was so beautiful. I mean, it was such a great, um, I think she told, the story of our friendship and, and us being teammates in such a beautiful way. So that was incredibly touching. I mean, it takes a very good writer to write a piece where, I mean, and I'm biased because it's about me, but like I was crying and laughing at the same time. So I just, I am very grateful that she wrote that piece. Yeah, it was really good. We'll put a link up to it for people who haven't seen it in the show notes for this one. So I guess that kind of brings us to what's next for you. As we already touched on a little bit, you're still training down in Arizona right now. And it's not not, um, exactly easing back into sitting on a beach with a beer or anything. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I mean, like I said, you've announced your retirement from World Cups. But yeah, what's next from here? Yeah, I am racing the Lifetime Grand Prix this season. So I got accepted into that series. It's three very long gravel races and three mount- longer mountain bike races. It's it's going to be a new challenge because I have spent 20 years training for an hour and a half long effort. <laughs> and this one will be I don't know, three, anywhere from three to 12 hour long races. So it's really different. And I'm so excited. I mean, it's the, the, it's a, it's a relief and, and there's kind of a release of pressure from after retiring from world cups. Um, You don't realize how much pressure we've been functioning under, you know, and then until you step back and I go, Oh, wow. Okay. And it's like a perfect opportunity to race domestically in the U S where I really haven't gotten a chance to do much racing in the U S because all of the world cups are over in Europe and they take up a lot of time traveling back and forth and everything. So it kind of, I'd see it as a homecoming of sorts, you know, it's, it's like full circle. And I think the new challenge will be really fun. I mean, it's, it's definitely energizing to me. So I'm very pumped. I have, I was able to um, sign on three new sponsors. Two of them are title sponsors. So I've just gotten a lot of energy and life injected into me by um, working with these new partners and, and everyone's stoked. So I'm psyched to announce that pretty soon. Awesome. Yeah, it's good to hear that you got 
some solid support for the whole endeavor. And where are the races going to be? What's the series look like? Yeah, so it starts out at Sea Otter Classic. Um, that's in the beginning of April, so that's coming right up here. Uh, then we get May off, and then the beginning of June is Unbound Gravel, which is a 200-mile gravel race. Sea Otter's a mountain bike race. Then we go to Utah for Crusher and the Tusher, which is a gravel race with a lot of climbing. It's only 70 miles, but it's, a, it's still a very long effort. Then I believe, uh, what am I missing? Leadville is next in August. Racing with no oxygen on the mountain bike for 100 miles. <laughs> the next event is Schwamigan, which is a mountain bike race. It's 40 miles, and I call it the Midwest World Championships. And then the se- season finale is in Arkansas in Bentonville um, at Big Sugar. So that's another gravel race. So that's, those are the races that I'll be focusing on and I'll be able to do some races in between there as like more of prep and fun. Right on. And have you done much gravel racing yet or is that going to be pretty new for you? Okay. (laughs) That's that's kind of what I figured, but. (laughs) I've done two gravel races. So I've done Raspitiza. Is that true? Yeah, I did Raspitiza and then I did Rooted. So there's actually the gravel scene is thriving in Vermont. Those are both gravel races that I used for training, you know, just for the mountain bike season. And I've always been good at the longer events. Like when I've done stage races, when I've done world championship marathon, mountain bike world championships. And even over the course of a cross country world cup, I usually go negative laps. So like, in the final two laps, the last lap, I'll usually get um, in the past like some of the fastest lap times. So I think that bodes well for my endurance. And I'm like obviously switching up my training a little bit to include very long rides, which my coach has called death marchy. <laughs> like, oh, this training will be a little bit death marchy, but it will be really good prep. <laughs> So that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Well, that'll be an exciting new chapter. And I can imagine just fun to do something new and a little bit different after quite a while of being on this World Cup circuit and doing doing one thing. Just yeah, good to switch it up sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be fun, I think. Yeah, looking forward to following along on it. Well, yeah, this has been awesome. Before I let you go, though, we do like to wrap here by asking our guests if they've got a big idea to share with us. The show's called Bikes and Big Ideas, after all. Ooh. So really anything goes for these. But what do you have for us? Oh, I love it. Um, let's see. My, I have a couple big ideas. <laughs> Please. I, we'll take multiples. I actually... <laughs> I... Um, I spent the past year taking a public speaking course. So the gift that not being selected for my, the Olympic team in Tokyo gave me, which was my first keynote speech on resilience. <laughs> so I, um, I was able to give that keynote speech this year, like this past year, a couple times. So I'm excited about giving that forward. And I think my big idea comes from that keynote speech and that experience is 
you have to stay open when you're in a very challenging place because you never know what's going to come up from it. You know, when one door closes, another one may open. So the example I have from that is, you know, after not being selected for the Olympic team, I remained open and I was like, okay, I'm going to wake up at two in the morning and I'm going to watch this, this Olympic mountain bike race. I am so curious, obviously. And I wanted to know how team US Slay did, you know? So as I'm watching this race, it was painful and it gave me a new perspective on my Olympic experience because I came out of Rio Olympics. I went into Rio Olympics winning a silver medal, right, in the world championship. So I was a medal favorite, and I walked away from the Olympics with a seventh place, so out of the medals. And I was a little bit, I was bummed about that because it felt like a great opportunity and it may have been my moment to win a medal. So what I saw when I was watching that Tokyo Olympic mountain bike race was Evie Richards was, I think she was the one that ended up in seventh place. And I realized, and she was in seventh for most of the race. And I realized Evie was right in there, like right in the mix, like just something you feel like a little bit better on the day or something goes your way, then she would have been in the, in the medals, just as I would have been in the medals in Rio. So it, it gave me kind of closure on that Olympic experience and, and being like, yeah, you know what? I was right in the mix and that is an awesome result. Even though I didn't get a medal, like I became very proud of that result. And Evie went on to win the world championship. So it just shows that bike racing, you know, can be up and down and, and all over the place. So my big idea is remain open especially when you're in a challenge because you never know what's going to happen. That's great. I love that one. <laughs> okay. Is it big enough? <laughs> yeah. Uh, like we said, it, we get everything from like, we've had everyone should learn to do wheelies before. We've had stuff about tackling cool. climate change. It's just, it's all over the place. So like I said, yeah. truly anything goes for those. And that was an excellent one. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Leah, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming on. Congrats on everything and on the new chapter here. And it's been a blast talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And again, if you're enjoying these shows, we'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to leave us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Leah for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon. Bye, everybody.